All right, so we're on Revelation, and last week I said we were going to start the seven trumpets tonight, and so we will. However, I wanted to back up to the beginning of chapter 8. We actually got through the first six, five verses of chapter 8 last time, but something struck me as I was getting ready. So let's go back to the beginning for a moment. And when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Somebody asked about that. Was that you? Do you know? Okay. I think I have an insight into that. Yeah. Um, So when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw seven angels who stood before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. All right. So that's where I want to spend just a couple of minutes. Where have we seen this before in Scripture? Virtually the same thing. Where have we seen it before in Scripture? Book of Joshua, outside Jericho. So let's go to Joshua chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. You shall do so for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. So here you have seven priests in this case, angels in Revelation, each of whom has a trumpet. Let's keep reading. So verse 4, seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast on the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So what are the instructions to the army as they're marching around the city for six days. Silence. 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 Now, there isn't complete silence because if you read on, what happens is, is they march around each time. The priests with a ram horn are blowing their horns. Okay? So the trumpets are sounding as the army marches around Jericho, but the army itself is silent until the final trumpet and then they shout, the walls fall down, and in they go. Right? All right. So, you have several obvious parallels there. The big obvious parallel is this is the people of the nation Israel going in to take the land back from people who are not supposed to be there, and who are they led by? Yeshua, Joshua. And the book of Revelation is the people of Israel coming back to take the land, the earth, away from the usurper, Satan, who is the leader of that effort. Yeshua, Joshua. Okay? So what I'm suggesting to you is, and I didn't really make that clear when I started Revelation, one of the things about Revelation is virtually everything in Revelation has happened before. And so what I'm suggesting here is that you have a clear parallel between 
the invasion of the land of Israel and the taking of the town of Jericho and what's happening in heaven in Revelation chapter 8. Okay? And I don't know what the purpose of the silence in heaven is for half an hour, and I don't know whether the silence in heaven mirrors the silence around Jericho or the silence around Jericho mirrors the silence. I just have no idea. But you've got it happening in both places. Or at least you've got something similar happening in both places. And I suspect part of it coming down out of Jericho is it was psychological warfare. Because what you had is the whole army marching around the city silently. Priests blowing the horns, but the whole army is just marching around silently and then they go home. And the next day they come and they march around it again silently and they go home. You know, we have some indication from the dialogue with Rahab when the two spies get sent in there that everybody in Jericho is more than a little bit nervous anyway. And so you have this parade that goes around there six times and you can imagine what the tension is inside the city. And then you, at the end of the day, you know, when the final trumpet sounds at the last trumpet, right? And the people shout and the walls fall down. I imagine that there probably wasn't a whole lot of very spirited resistance at that point. The other thing I've said, and I wrote just to remind you, is it's my perspective that the three sets of seven in Revelation, seals, trumpets, and bowls, are meant to be sequential and are meant to be taken literally. They're not, um, they're not allegorical. There's going to be some allegorical stuff in here. There's a lot of allegorical stuff, but I'm suggesting that the sequence here is intended to be just exactly what it is. So now I'm going to skip forward to uh, Revelation 8, verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and, those were th- and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Okay, now, again, one of the things that I said last time is from the sixth seal on, everything that happens can be explained in the physical world by having a very large, very massive planet-sized object come by the Earth but not hit it. Okay? And so the, the first one, the passage is you have the, this large thing passing by and the gravitational tides between the earth and this thing are going to cause you know, uh, earthquakes and the, uh, everything to move and all that kind of stuff. Everything that you saw in the, in the sixth and seventh seals. I am not suggesting that these are not supernatural events. But the way God does things in history is he used natural things in a supernatural way. So when God wants to drop hailstones on the fleeing Canaanite armies, he uses rocks falling from heaven. Okay, And they are real rocks and they are real meteors and all that kind of stuff. It is simply the timing and the aim that God does. He doesn't need to invent anything else. I call that the, you know, the, the principle of the conservation of miracles. You don't do any more miracles than you have to. 
Now, why does, I'm serious, why does God not do any more miracles than he has to? There's a reason for it. So the one he does stand out, okay. That, that's true. So that people who don't want to believe in God will have plausible deniability. So if you were an observer watching the Philistine armies get chased off of the central highlands in Israel under Joshua and you watch these rocks come down and clobber these guys, you could say, oh, Son of a gun. Unfortunate meteor shower. Bummer for the Philistines. Bad luck. Right? You understand what I'm saying? If you, if you decided you didn't want to believe in God, you could say that. And God seems to do that all over Scripture. He doesn't do any more obvious and overt miracles than necessary. Okay? And, and those are typically to make a point. And, if, and again, you'll notice that one of the things, you know, the, the big overt miracles at the Exodus are fairly unique. A lot of the miracles that occur later on in Scripture are onesies and twosies, which is to say, um, who's Samson's father? Manoah. Thank you, Manoah. Yeah, Manoah and his wife are visited by an angel. And they come and they... they make an offering and they, you know, kill a kid and put it on the rock and the angel draws down fire from heaven and consumes it and then floats up into the overhead. Well, the only witnesses to that were Manoah and his wife. And so what he did is he did that to authenticate himself to those folks, but he didn't, you know, gather a whole big crowd and say, all right, guys, everybody gather around. I'm going to show this miracle to Manoah and his wife. It was sort of a one-on-one private thing. The big ones that he's done, uh, the Exodus, I mean, that was showy on purpose because he wanted to make a point of who he was and so forth. Um, You've got Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Not too many others. What I'm suggesting here in in the first trumpet is if this hypothesis is correct that we have a large astronomical object flying by, and it doesn't have to be. Okay, I'm just, it doesn't have to be correct. I'm just going on, as I say, the conservation of miracles principle here. Then what you have is the earth is flying through the tail of that thing, and you've got basically a rain of red-hot buckshot that's hitting the planet. In other words, this is a meteor shower, but not you know the little wimpy things that burn up in the atmosphere. These are big enough that lots of them make the ground. Verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And again, what I'm positing there is one of the things that's trailing behind this thing is big. Uh, He describes it as a mountain. So it's big enough that when it hits the ocean, you have tsunamis that destroy uh, ships in port, uh, you have this red-hot thing that hits, and what it does is it elevates the temperature of the sea around there. And so what you get are anaerobic algae that gl- grow up in the, in the warm, oxygen-depleted seawater, so the sea turning into blood kind of a thing. And, of course, the, the number of uh, 
sea creatures dying is again very consistent with a shock wave like that. And then, of course, the oxygen-deprived water from a red tide would also cause the death of lots of sea creatures. And, and again, I'm not saying that this couldn't literally be a great mountain and the sea became blood a la the Nile River being turned into blood. I'm not saying that that's not the case. I'm simply saying, and, and, and again, I'm not denying supernatural origins to all this. I'm not saying that this is you know, just a really bad day on planet Earth, although it is. Verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Now, the, the Again, this book that I'm reading, that I read, and I'm not reading it now, posits that this may have been, again, another large chunk of debris following the planet, but instead of doing impact on the earth like the mountain that fell into the ocean, it hits the atmosphere and basically skips. And what you have is a superheated shock wave. All sorts of chemical compounds get created in the atmosphere, and you have uh, basically acid rain or something similar to it. Again, that seems to fall on the land, the streams of water and so forth. Again, it could be something entirely different, but what, you, what is described here is consistent with such an event. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And again, this is perfectly consistent with dust. Uh, atmospheric dust from all of the stuff that's hitting and, and the explosions that are going on. There, there are several very large craters in Russia, one of which at least was caused during human lifetime. I think it was 1907. You had a major meteorite impact in uh, central Russia and you had, for something on the order of 50 kilometers around the center of impact, you had trees leveled like matchsticks. Compared to what appears to be happening here in Revelation, this is small potatoes. So when you have that much energy being dumped into the atmosphere and you have these large things being hitting the earth, the amount of dust and debris that gets thrown up into the atmosphere is going to be phenomenal. Uh, you all remember the boulder fire. The plume of smoke came right over our house. And so at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you could look up at the sun, and the sun was very, very dim and blood red. So again, this is very consistent with massive clouds of dust. Verse 13. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So what he, and, and I have no idea what the symbolism of an eagle is here. Just don't know. Yeah, some text it's eagle, some text it's angel. But anyway, what this, what this uh, being is saying is, we still got three trumpets to go, and we ain't even getting started good yet, so it, it's really going to get bad now. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Okay. Stars but, are symbolic of messengers. 
Stars have been symbolic of angels. So the fifth angel blew his trump, trumpet and so I saw a star could be messenger uh, fallen from heaven to earth. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So stars have been used elsewhere in Revelation as a metaphor for angels. Early on in Revelation, Yeshua stands with the seven stars, remember? And the seven stars are the angels to the seven churches, the messengers to the seven churches. So the idea of star being an angel is perfectly consistent. And at least in this translation, he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, not it. So it reads as a personal pronoun. So it's it's like a being, not a thing. Star. Right. How could it be Well, it could be metaphorical. In other words, it one of the things that's been posited here, apparently there's a movie out called or there was called Deep Impact. Yes. Where you have a, a meteor bore straight in and it's big enough to to breach the crust of the earth. Could be such a thing. Okay. I don't think it is. But certainly, that's not unreasonable. Let's read on. We'll talk about the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft arose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened and the smoke with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. They were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Okay, let's start with the bottomless pit. Uh, If you do search on bottomless and pit, the only place it shows up is here in Revelation. It shows up several times. If you do a search on pit, it's more interesting. The pit is a metaphor for Sheol, the grave. So if you look at Job chapter 33, for example, he keeps his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Uh, His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. So again, there it's a metaphor for the grave. Very straightforward. If you go to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 4, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. In other words, Now that we have peace from this king of Babylon, everybody breaks forth into singing. Verse 8, The cypress rejoices at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who are leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who are kings of the nations... All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become weak as we, you have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. 
So basically we're talking about the, the king of Babylon who, after conquering everything, dies. And I don't know which king of Babylon it happens to be, but that's irrelevant. Now we get down to verse 12 where it gets interesting. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Okay, we've shifted focus, obviously. Who's this speaking? Yeah, Satan. By the way, do you know what Satan's name is in Hebrew? Hallel, yeah. Yeah. Literally means praise. That's what his name means. Verse 5. Try again. 15. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who took kingdoms, who made the world like a desert, who overthrew its cities, who did not let its prisoners go home? So, we have then that the place of resting for Satan is Sheol, or the pit. The other clue that we have is in the book of Jude. We talked about this on Shabbat, so it should be fresh in your minds if you were here on Shabbat. And I want to pick it up in Jude uh, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Yeshua, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, first off, Yeshua, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. So what it's saying there is Yeshua is God, right? Because the Exodus was strictly a God the Father uh, exercise, at least of the way it was written down, right? So here he says, Yeshua saved the people out of Egypt. Verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So what you have here are angels who did not stay where they were supposed to stay. They overstepped their authority. And one of the ways in which they overstepped their authority was to engage in improper sex acts, unauthorized use of the reproductive organs, because it's comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's saying both of them, in verse 7, both of them indulged in sexual immorality. Right? And those are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. And so the question is, where is that? Where are they being kept in eternal chains in gloomy dark, under gloomy darkness? Well, yeah. It, 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 seems to, it would seem to me to be a reasonable inference that we're talking about the pit there again. Because you have Lucifer has been, or will be, sent to the pit and these folks or these beings are kept down there. So what I'm suggesting to you is that there is, in fact, a pit, and the only place that it can be bottomless is the center of the earth, right? 
Because when you get in the center of the earth, every, all, every direction is up. Right? So if you're in a place where every direction is up, then you're in a place, you're as far down as you can go. So what I'm suggesting to you is going on in Revelation 9 is this place has been opened up. And it's either been opened up by something plowing down through there, or it's been opened up deliberately by whom? The star, whatever that star is. Yeah. Now, the next question that you have to ask yourself is, is the star a good guy or a bad guy? Right? In other words, is, is this opening up of the pit something that God has done, or is it something that's happening as a result of all the other stuff that's going on here and is, and is not, in fact, something that God necessarily approves of? The comment was that since it's a star fallen from heaven, it's either God sent it or God threw it out and it dropped. I tend to go with the latter. I think that the metaphor of fallen is negative. You know, it's a negative image. So when something falls from heaven, that's not something you want. Something flies down from heaven or something lands from heaven or, you know, you know, sort of under control and, and having been sent there as opposed to. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to you know being kicked in the tail feathers and thrown out, in which case you would fall from heaven. All right. So now we have these locusts that come up, and these are not natural locusts. Don't know what they are, but they aren't natural locusts because there's, we're going to find out several things about them that are not natural. The first thing we're going to find out about them is that they don't eat greenery. Do not eat greenery. Sort of by definition, a plague of locusts is when locusts come in and they strip everything that's green and eat it. These locusts don't eat anything green. In fact, they're told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. So that's unnatural. It's also unnatural, of course, for them to be able to sting people. You know, locusts are not poisonous. And then we have this business where they avoid those who are sealed on their foreheads. Remember we had 144,000 were sealed with a mark on their forehead. And Satan doesn't do anything original, so the mark of the beast is Satan's counterfeit. Satan's attempt to confuse people about whose mark to take. That, by the way, is exactly correct, precise. God has a mark that he puts on his people. What Satan will do is put a mark of his own out there. And the whole purpose of that will be because so many people in Christendom have been told ever since they were little kids in Sunday school, don't take the mark. And that's been drilled into everybody. Don't want to take the mark. And we look for barcodes and we look for tattoos and we look for license plates. And is this the mark of the beast? Is that the mark of the beast? Is the, is the beast going to step, you know, and, you know, People are paranoid about it. And so what's happened is God is saying, safety lies in my mark. So what Satan does with all of his PR is he goes out there and he throws out a counterfeit mark and and he doesn't really care very much whether you take his counterfeit mark or you avoid the mark of God. 
from his perspective, it's, it's a win either way. So if you say, all right, I don't know which mark is right, but I ain't taking any marks. No marks on me. Okay? Well, if you say that, he's won, because you don't take the mark of God. Okay? And there will be people who will be fooled into taking Satan's mark, thinking they are taking the mark of God. Because remember, you've got the false prophet who's going to be out there telling everybody, oh, yeah, no, this isn't, this, it's okay to take this mark. That's what the false prophet's job is. So there's going to be tremendous confusion there. Now, one of the things that came up the last time we did this is the question of how do you know? Okay. And who gets the mark? Now, we know there's 144,000, right? Those, those are rounded up and marked by God. What I'm suggesting to you is that it's the job of those 144,000 to basically go throughout the earth because you have a thousand pairs per nation. So in, in the Septuagint, there are 72 nations. In the Masoretic text, there's only 70, but in the Septuagint, there's 72. Yeshua always sends his messengers out two by two. So you have 144,000, 72 nations. That's 1,000 pairs per nation. And so their job then, I think, is to gather God's people and get them to a place of safety. And one of the things that came up last time we did this is, how do you know who the right guys are? Of course, one thing is they got a mark on their forehead, but there's going to be lots of people with marks on their forehead, and there are going to be different marks. So how do you tell? Signs and wonders isn't going to work, because Satan is going to be able to do signs and wonders, right? A couple of clues, depending on what you think these guys are. Uh, if you go to Ezekiel 44, and you go down to verse 23... This is talking about priests now. It's not talking about prophets. And I don't know what these guys are. One of the things that a priest does is they shall teach my people the difference between holy and the common, show them how to distinguish between the clean and the unclean. In a dispute they shall act as judges, and they shall judge according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed feasts, and they shall keep my Sabbath holy. So there's some clues right there. They should be able to know and teach the difference between clean and unclean and the difference between common and profane. Okay, Everybody know what the difference is between common and profane? Holy stuff is used in the tabernacle and for tabernacle service. Profane stuff is not. Okay, Clean and unclean is to whore and to my, and that has to do with dietary laws and blood and all of the things that are mentioned in the... Uh, letter to, from the Council of Jerusalem. Now the other place you can go, which where we went last time, is Deuteronomy uh, 13. And there's a couple of tests for prophets. So Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of de- dreams arises among you and gives you a sign and a wonder, or a wonder, aha, okay, are there going to be people out there doing signs and wonders? You betcha. So th- this, this might seem to apply. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, 
So this guy is a genuine, for real, bona fide, able to do signs and wonders. Because it comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. So there's your, there's your first clue, is you've got some guy that is able to draw a crowd by doing signs and wonders. Question is, where is he leading you? Is he leading you to worship other gods? Okay. And if he does, you know you got the wrong, the wrong guy. The next place is Deuteronomy 18. Uh, pick it up at verse 17. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command him. All right, now we all pretty much know that the prophet is Yeshua. 19. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he will speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. All right, so you're supposed to listen to him. But the prophet, now we've shifted. In other words, we were talking about the prophet, capital T, capital P. Now we are talking about the prophet, which is not the same guy. And it's a little confusing because the prophet is used in both cases. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So you've got sort of two prophets in this passage. You've got the prophet, capital T, capital P, which is Yeshua. Okay? Because remember, when Yeshua comes back, the first thing they say to him, are you Elijah? He says, no. Or, I'm sorry, John the Baptist. When, he, when John the Baptist comes back, the first thing they say to him is, are you Elijah? No. The second thing they say to him is, are you the prophet? And he says no to that also. Yeshua is the one who is the prophet. But then in this, the next part of this thought, it says the prophet who presumes to speak in his name, that's sort of a generic prophet. And in that case, if it doesn't come true, you don't have to obey. So you've got a couple of cases to how to tell a prophet. One is, if it doesn't come true, you can ignore him. Which is, by the way, why Old Testament prophets typically gave, gave short-range prophecies to authenticate themselves before they started going along. You know, before they started prophesying about the end of the age, they gave short-range prophecies so everybody would know, okay, this guy is, in fact, really connected to God. So, if short-term it doesn't come true, you can ignore it. If it does come true, and then he tries to lead you away from God, then you also ignore it. And one of the indicators of being led away from God, I will suggest to you, is he doesn't know the difference between holy and common, and he doesn't know the difference between clean and unclean. He doesn't keep Sabbaths. He doesn't keep the festivals. Or pork chops and shrimp cocktails. That's right. 
Yeah, comment was that all of this that I've just said presupposes that the people of God know about these things so that they can recognize when they are being told something that's true and when they're being told something that's false. All right, so let's go back to Revelation. So now we're all the way down to verse 7, making great progress. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is called Apollyon. Okay, so a couple of things. If you look at a locust, and I've spent part of the afternoon looking at photographs of locusts. Locusts have an exoskeleton, so they look like they have a breastplate. They have a flat face, which is like a horse's face, you know, vertical flat face. Don't, they don't have hair. Sorry, that doesn't fit. And they don't have tails with stings. So again, these are not natural locusts, but there are things about them that is. And if you've ever been in a swarm of flying insects, they make a lot of noise. Uh, people try and make this into an armored cavalry invasion and, and mechanized and all that kind of stuff. I don't think it's metaphorical. we got something that comes out of the bottomless pit. We're going to have a 200 million man army later on in the book. So God is perfectly capable of describing an army. You don't have to do that here. And, and I don't, which isn't to say that I'm right. It's just I don't see it that way, but you know, this is not thus saith anybody but me. Uh, the other thing that shows that these are not natural locusts is if you go to Proverbs 30, in verse 27, it says, The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. And this one says that the locusts, these locusts do have a king. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon. Now, notice we got two angels here. We got the angel that goes down there with a the key and unlocks the place. And then we have an angel that's down there who is Abaddon. And Abaddon and Apollyon both mean destruction in their, in their various languages. I'm going to shift gears on you for just a minute here. In Scripture, there are several different meanings to any passage of Scripture. There's the plain, literal meaning, you know, what, the, what it says. There's a homiletic meaning. Okay, which is you know, the lessons that you can draw from it. There is a hidden meaning, and then there's a mystical meaning. I want to take you now to Proverbs, and let's go to Proverbs 15, and it says in verse 11, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man? And this is a heavy and light argument, obviously. In other words, if even Sheol and Abaddon are open before the Lord, how much more the hearts of men? And the only thing I want you to see there is the connection of the hearts of the children of men and Sheol and Abaddon. Because the next place I'm going to take you is going to be Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. 
and never satisfied are the eyes of man. So here you have the eyes of man, in this case, is the desire. In other words, you, you cast your eyes on something with desire. So here you have Sheol and Abaddon linked with human desire. And before you have Sheol and Abaddon linked with the human heart. So in addition to the literal meaning of real demon locusts coming up, I'm going to suggest that there's something else going on there. And that is that this is unlocking the stuff that's in the human heart. And you could look at the bottomless pit as being a metaphor from the, for the human heart. And what does the human heart do? It's deceitful, it's deceitful above all things. What's the first mention of the human heart? I think it's in Genesis 6. Genesis 6, Genesis 6 verse 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then if you go after the flood, Genesis 8.21, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. So the first two mentions of the human heart before and after the flood are not good. So one of the things I'm suggesting to you is not an instead of, but an additional deeper meaning of this opening the bottomless pit and all this junk coming out. Where does most of the evil that happens on the earth come from? The human heart. I mean, once we got, once we got wound up and set in motion, Satan can pretty much take a holiday. Because we do it to ourselves. The secular, popular thing, oh, follow your heart, trust your heart, that's the worst thing you can do. Because the heart, undirected by a, a mind that is stayed on the Lord, is evil. Notice how I said that? I said that very carefully. A heart that is not directed by a mind which is stayed upon the Lord is very dangerous and evil. So I'll suggest to you, as I say, that there's a couple of meanings going on here besides the literal one there. Verse 12. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So, we've got two more woes to go. We'll, we'll, finish, we'll end there at the end of the first woe. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you. Shut